Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. An original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Craig Wright is an Australian computer scientist at the heart of a multi-billion dollar battle to see who owns Bitcoin. Not the cryptocurrency, the brand. Wright has been trying to get himself recognised as Bitcoin's pseudonymous creator Satoshi Nakamoto for over seven years, but having failed in the court of public opinion, he has recently taken his battle to bricks and mortar courts as he attempts to sue his way to being awarded ownership of the Bitcoin name and the trillion dollar ecosystem that comes with it. Wright's supporters claim he is undoubtedly the creator of Bitcoin, while his detractors believe his claim to the Bitcoin throne to be based on nothing but a phalanx of lies and forgeries, supported and funded by a billionaire casino magnate. Throughout this series, myself and my co-host, semi-professional Craig Wright debunker Arthur Van Pelt, will take you through the incredible story of Craig Stephen Wright and his attempts to claim ownership of the financial revolution that is Bitcoin. This is not a story about Bitcoin, blockchain or cryptocurrencies. This is a story of David versus Goliath, of the extraordinary lengths that Craig Wright is going to to try and seize ownership of the Bitcoin brand and the damage that is being done to regular people along the way. This is episode one, A Taxing Situation. Hello and welcome to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that does indeed lift the lid on the efforts of Mr. Craig Stephen Wright to gain acceptance as Bitcoin's creator, Satoshi Nakamoto. My name is Mark Hunter, author, blockchain writer and podcast host, and it is my job to guide you through the morass of events, claims, counterclaims, lies, thefts and lawsuits that all go into making up this at times unbelievable story. Wright attempts to bulldoze his way into being given the keys to the Bitcoin Lambo, taking battles with the Australian tax office, billion dollar computer hacks, lawsuits against his own company, and so much more, with the pinnacle being a Florida court case taking place in November this year, where the fate of over 1 million Bitcoin, currently worth $50 billion, is at stake, if it exists. Arthur, this is one hell of a story, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, for sure. So as a bit of an introduction before we get into the story at large, would you say there's anyone apart from perhaps Craig Wright himself who knows him and his history better than you at this point? I'm in a group of Craig Wright debunkers who know a lot about him, but I'm probably the most outspoken on uh, especially Twitter. And when did you first come across our hero? Do you remember? 2015 in December when the Wired and Gizmodo articles came out and I learned a lot about him. As a teaser then, who is Craig Wright and why should we care about him? Yeah, that's pretty easy. He is now suing a lot of uh, people in the the Bitcoin industry, uh, from developers to just uh, Bitcoin community members. By harassing them, uh, it makes him a bit irrelevant. Before we go much further, I think it's worth pointing out that for those that are coming to this from a non-Bitcoin and non-crypto perspective, they may have some ideas of what Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is all about but they won't know that cryptocurrency is very much like a religion or politics. 
where there's a large number of people who hold very strong beliefs about certain individuals and certain projects who they would seemingly die defending. And Craig Wright's current project, BSV, is at the extreme end of this. BSV supporters on Twitter have accused you, Arthur, of being paid to be negative about them. Could you confirm hand on heart for us here that you are not being paid for this podcast? Yeah, I swear on the life of my children that I'm not being paid except for a few donations from followers over the years. And I think it has not even run in between $250 and $500. It's it's a hobby. That's why I call it a hobby. Now, you've written so much material about Craig Wright, and obviously now we're doing the podcast as well. So what is your motivation for keeping this going? Yeah, it's basically a fascination for the whole situation. My background is in IT and finance, and I have been working for a company that is building uh, fraud protection software. So the, the fraud element is close to my heart. The social element of how is it possible that such a person is building such a following and is getting sponsored is interesting. The Bitcoin part, which I'm doing already since 2012, is interesting. Yeah, I'll also um, say here, I mean, I'm not sure if I speak for you, but for me, certainly, unlike many who are the most fervent supporters of their own projects and their own individuals, I'm not saying that Craig Wright won't ever be accepted and proven to be Satoshi Nakamoto. If he comes out tomorrow with conclusive proof that can't be disproven by anybody, I will believe that he created Bitcoin. So it's not like I'm saying he will never, ever be accepted as Satoshi Nakamoto. What we're saying, or what I'm saying at least, is that what he's done to date has damaged his chances more than promoted them while he has been promoting them. Would you say that's fair? In my opinion, it's totally impossible that he will ever be declared, except by fraud, he will be declared Satoshi in any court case or or elsewhere. But if it will be concluded that he is Satoshi, he will still be punished for the fraud. Well, yeah, that's going to be the subject of this podcast. So for those, again, who aren't too au fait with the whole Satoshi Nakamoto myth, if you like, essentially, this is someone who has never been positively identified. There are many names that are thrown about. Uh, Some are nominated by other people. Some, or one in the case of Craig Wright, has put themselves forward as being Satoshi Nakamoto. We assume it's a he, it could have been a she, could have been a group, no one knows, published the Bitcoin white paper in October 2008, saying that this is what Bitcoin's going to be, it's going to be decentralised currency, it's going to be owned by no one, there'll be no central body, no central issuing body, it's all done by mathematics, it's all done by coding, and it can't be corrupted by human influence, which was the big reason for doing it. He worked with a few people to improve everything for a couple of years, as you say, And then when it seems that he thought it was at the point where it could stand on its own two feet, he walked away from the project, leaving billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin in various addresses and has never been heard of again. And that is part of the myth around Bitcoin and part of the reason why it's such a fascinating subject is because no one knows who created it. And there's been so many people, so many reporters with all their contacts, all their abilities to dig into things and extract information They've either always got the wrong person or just come up blank. No one knows who he is, and there's a very good reason for that. And this is why I think, as well, a lot of people are really annoyed that Craig Wright is trying to adopt the mantle of Bitcoin's creator, because it's seen as a protocol sort of made by an anonymous person for the masses. And who is he to try and grab it all for himself? 
Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, if there's somebody coming forward who is really Satoshi Nakamoto and can prove it beyond uh, any reasonable doubt by, uh, for example, posting on one of the forums that uh, Satoshi used in those years, like the P2P Foundation, uh, the Bitcoin Forum, uh, which is now called uh, Bitcoin Talk. He could uh, sign the Genesis block like Charlie Lee from Litecoin uh, once did in 2016. I mean, it's so easy so easy to come up with convincing evidence that you're Satoshi. But all Craig Wright has been doing is uh, beating around the bush and creating uh, hundreds of lies and forgeries over time. So it's it's really not convincing. Now, we won't go into too much detail about what Bitcoin is, because Bitcoin isn't the story here. Craig Wright is the story here. And in many ways, this could be about anything. Bitcoin just happens to be the vehicle for this fascinating individual. So to start the entire story off, we don't really know a huge amount about Craig Wright's childhood and his early years. We can only go by snippets he's given in interviews or he's mentioned online, and also some interviews that his family have given. What we do know does give us an insight into why he does what he does and what was to come for the next 30 to 40 years. Wright was born on October the 23rd, 1970 in Brisbane, Australia. He says, I was white trash despite the efforts of my mother. We were poor and we had less than most people in poverty. His father was a Vietnam War veteran who, once he'd completed his service, was both verbally and then physically abusive to Wright's mother. Wright says of his father, he never admired me, I was never f***ing good enough. And that shows a very strained relationship, which could explain his desperation for notoriety in later life. It's very clear Wright's got a strong relationship with his mother. He calls her an amazing woman and says that the divorce caused her to be abandoned by her community because of the strong Catholic religion. So he was raised by a working mother and he started working himself from a young age and this work ethic has definitely manifested itself in his adult life. One thing you can say for him is he's extremely hard working regardless of the legitimacy or otherwise of his efforts but it seems that he definitely felt from a young age he had something to prove uh, and he's definitely a fighter, we'll certainly give him that. He doesn't always go about things in the most legal way, but it's very clear he's a very driven individual. He also spent lots of time with his maternal grandfather, who had lots of radio and early computing equipment in his basement. And Wright spent a lot of time playing with these computers, getting into computers and that sort of thing. So it's pretty clear to see where all that came from. Now, there's a very interesting quote from Wright's mother who gave an interview in 2015. And she says that Craig Wright had, quote, a long-standing habit of adding bits to the truth just to make it bigger. And we have a couple of examples of this. Uh, Wright fell off his bike as a child and went to the doctor. And he told the doctor he'd broken his nose around 20 times already. But each time he'd broken it, he just sewed it back up again by himself. Yeah, the doctor could not find any proof of these things uh, happening. Yeah, this is a great example, isn't it? Just a small, simple incident where he just has to push it so far that it makes you doubt the veracity of the event itself. Now, of course, we can't go too much on what could just have been a standard childhood lie, but 
We have another example of this sort of thing 40 years later when Scottish author Andrew O'Hagan, who was the one that interviewed Wright's mother in 2015, he spent about nine months with Craig Wright in 2015 and 2016. And he says, referring to Wright here, in what he said, he often went further than he needed to, further than he ought to have done. He appeared to start with the truth and then slowly he would inflate his part until the whole story suddenly looked weak. And is that not a perfect encapsulation of Craig Wright? Yeah, absolutely. I can give handfuls of examples where, where things uh, started with some footing in reality, but uh, go totally haywire because Craig makes it either with fraud or lies. He totally derails the story into total craziness. And it, it ended up that he is uh, keeping on to his, uh, what I call the Satoshi Nakamoto cosplay, but it's uh, it's covered and, and sidetracked with a lot of those uh, same types of cosplays and, and, and fraudulent activities that if you look back and go to the roots of it, many times it has some footing in reality, actually. By his teenage years, Wright is into computers in quite a big way. And he claims he got into trouble as a teenager for hacking into the school network and changing the teacher records, adding, quote, funny profiles and embarrassing materials. He says around this time he was writing code for hacking groups and that he himself hacked into White Sands, a US Army rocket and missile launching site, which he says led to a visit from nice men with earpieces. Is it really feasible for a teenager in Australia in the 1980s to do that and attract that kind of attention? I can only say from an umbrella view on him, he tells so many nonsense stories. It could easily be one of them where he admitted to his wife or ex-wife that he was one of the co-founders of, uh, I think that organization is called Legion of Doom, which was indeed a famous hacking group in the early days of internet. But how true is it? I have no idea. What we do know is that at some point in the 1990s, Wright joined the Mets Dowd mailing list, which was the group where the Bitcoin white paper was presented in 2008 for the first time. But Wright left because he says he fell out with Julian Assange and his ultra-libertarian views. We should also mention here that Wright says he suffers from Asperger's syndrome, something that was only formally diagnosed, according to him, in 2020 or possibly even later. His mother never mentions it in any of the interviews that she did with Andrew O'Hagan, even though it would surely have been manifesting itself in Wright's younger years. On the flip side, this was the 1970s, early 1980s, when this sort of thing wasn't really known about, and certainly not as much as it is now, so it could have just slipped under the radar because there just wasn't as much known about it at the time. Wright described his antics in his youth as those of an Aspie kid. So, you know, he obviously knows he had it back then, whether he knew what it was at the time or not. He now refers to himself as an autistic savant with a ludicrously high IQ score. On December the 5th, 2018, he put this at 182. On December the 31st, three weeks later, this had dropped to 179. And six months after this, in June 2019, it was back up to 183 again. This puts him at an ultra-genius level, surpassing Stephen Hawking and Albert Einstein, although it was revealed in court documents that he hasn't actually taken an IQ test, so this is all his own assumptions. Of course, I'm not in the position to have medical uh, opinions on, uh, on those things. On the other hand, I've been reading into this quite a lot. And what I see mostly 
covered it well is what is called NPD, the Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Those type of people who think they can get away with everything, who keep on pushing new lies on top of old lies to cover up for the things that have been debunked previously. I hesitate a little to be firm about it, but it, it comes pretty close what I read about it. On the subject of lying, actually, there's an interesting quote from a 2020 blog post about how Wright's Asperger's has affected his ability to lie. And he says, Lying is not something I do easily or well, and my behaviour is not a mark of deception, but rather normal for autistic individuals. I am brutally honest, but also incredibly precise. This is partially true in that individuals on the autistic spectrum can have trouble telling lies, but another claim of his that I am an Aspie, I don't bluff is ironically completely false. After college, Wright joined the Air Force, apparently working on a smart bombing system before leaving to study at the University of Queensland, where he paid his way by working as a chef. He initially attended engineering classes but switched to computer science in his fourth year. However, Wright says that his first year of study was interrupted by what he calls late-stage cancer, and this apparently cost him his degree and nearly his life. He has since said that this experience of facing death multiple times in youth changes a person. Once again, Wright's mother didn't back up the seriousness of this illness when she spoke to Andrew O'Hagan. All she said was that Wright needed some skin grafts before heading off to Queensland University, which also contradicts his timeline of events. So once he left university, Wright worked in the IT sector for various companies, including Kmart and the Australian Securities Exchange and BDO Kendall's, all while studying for various degrees and other qualifications. He also helped design the framework for what may have been the world's first online casino, Lassiter's Online, which launched in 1999. And this casino link has ties to some of his Bitcoin claims later on. Wright claimed for years to have earned a doctorate in theology and comparative religious and classical studies awarded in 2003, but he's never stated the name of the awarding body. In fact, on his now-deleted LinkedIn page, where he was supposed to list the name of the awarding body, he simply wrote guess, as well as spelling comparative and religious wrong. This never happened. If you ask me, I've spoken to people who know about this and and they they were not willing to hand me the proof uh, of it. But as far as I uh, consider, they are trustworthy sources. They tell me that this theology doctor did not happen. So he has been using the doctor title falsely also for many years. Wright also claims to have studied at the University of London and completed multiple degrees at Charles Sturt University in Australia, including a PhD in computer science. This is partly true. Charles Sturt confirmed in 2015 that Wright did complete the master's qualification in three subjects, but was not awarded a PhD. Wright also says he took a post as a lecturer and researcher there in the mid-2010s, but they denied this, saying that rather than being a lecturer, Wright was in fact an adjunct academic, which is someone who does unpaid academic work and doesn't work for the university. Wright tackled these educational discrepancies in May 2021 following a Forbes article and additions to his Wikipedia page, where he claimed that Charles Sturt University would be breaking the law by revealing such information. He told his private community group, There is something you should note when you read the Wikipedia and Forbes articles. 
There was a statement that they contacted Charles Sturt University, who said that I had two master's degrees and no doctorate, but this is very simple to dismiss. The university doesn't do that. You see, in this age of private information, it remains a criminal offence to give out personally identifiable information without authority. A very simple way of discrediting the Forbes paid hit piece is to note that not only did they get the number of master's degrees I have wrong, or to ignore the fact that I was listed on the site as staff, but to note that the university does not validate information from random journalists. In fact, to do so would be a crime in Australia. This suggests that every recruitment agency and every private company hiring staff and looking to certify these candidates' degrees or their other certifications are asking that body to break the law by revealing the information to them, which is completely wrong. It also suggests that Charles Sturt University were happy to break the law to provide information that was supportive to Wright, but they weren't prepared to break the law to reveal information that was potentially damaging to him. How convenient. Wright did eventually earn his PhD in computer studies from Charles Sturt in 2017, so better late than never. Doesn't he now claim that he's working on something like 20 master's degrees at the same time? The numbers are mind-boggling. The number of patents that he's working on, the numbers of certificates that he has achieved and is still trying to achieve, and this, this is the same story. We can only believe it when we see it, uh, when he finished it and can show those certificates, uh, I guess. And if you write uh, half a page of one novel and half a page of another novel, I'm working on two novels. It already sounds impressive, but all I have is two uh, half pages of nothing. Exactly, exactly. Wright's cheerleaders like to say he's never lost a court case, but this isn't true either, because around this time, in 2004, he was convicted of contempt of court in Australia for illegally approaching customers of De Morgan Information Security Systems, a company he'd resigned from in 2003. He was sentenced to 28 days in jail, but he took this all the way to the Supreme Court of New South Wales, where he lost in 2006. It ended up that he had a, a debt at the end of that court case, and it was all the way up to, I think, 2000, roughly 2013, when he only managed to, uh, to settle roughly half a million dollars just before he went bankrupt. He was close to bankrupt in uh, 2013. Because of this court case, this is something that hardly uh, people know, but uh, he came out of that, I think, yeah, I say half a million, I think it was 400,000. $400,000 and the lawyers of the counterparty kept on chasing him until 2013 when he managed to settle it. Well, there's a fascinating quote from the judge in that case, which helps again to paint the picture that we are painting here. The quote is, The probative force of the new evidence depends in large measure on Wright's credibility and reliability. His explanations and interpretations of these and related documents are contradicted at critical points on which there is no independent evidence to support him. The appellant's contradictory evidence about the email of 11.16am on 10th of September 2003 raises doubts about his credibility, as does evidence based on the calls from his mobile phone that day. So, by 2006, there's already judges that are spotting him for what he is, isn't there? Yeah, they already discovered forged emails. He thought he could turn the case with forgeries, and it failed. So, that gives you a rough idea of the kind of person Craig Wright is becoming. I mean, you know, like we say, we don't know a huge amount about him from these early years, but 
from what we can put together, we have an idea of what kind of person he is and especially the kind of things he will do to try and win. Now, there's a reason why this first episode is called A Taxing Situation, and that's because in many ways his tax affairs kicked off the whole Satoshi Nakamoto uh, cosplay, as you put it, Arthur. But before we get into that side of things, we do need to give a brief introduction into one aspect of Bitcoin, which is essentially where it comes from, because it's very important to this story. Now, Bitcoin is built on blockchain technology, which is simply a way of adding transactions block after block after block to get a chain of transactions, essentially. Now, the way it works is that there's a group of people called miners who compete with these kind of computer systems to solve these mathematical equations. And the winner gets the chance to add the next block of transactions to the chain. Now, that essentially means that the last 10 minutes worth of transactions on the Bitcoin network go into each block and they are added to the chain. And the reward for these miners is Bitcoin, which is how it gets added to the ecosystem. So every 10 minutes, the winner of this competition gets awarded an amount of Bitcoin and they add the last 10 minutes worth of transactions to the blockchain. Now, in 2009, when Bitcoin started, each successful miner would earn 50 Bitcoin. Now, that's dropped massively in the years since then. But when it started, yeah, each miner got 50 Bitcoin for every block of transactions they added to the blockchain. So you can imagine in the early days when there's no one else mining, if you're getting 50 Bitcoin for every 10 minutes of transactions, that's going to add up to a pretty massive pile, isn't it, Arthur? If you allow me to add, Bitcoin is capped. With the algorithms, it's capped to 21 million Bitcoins issuance over, will end in uh, 2140. But this 21 million, uh, this, this hard cap, Craig now claims they were all mine. And I have an unwritten contract with the miners that I will give them uh, when they keep on processing these transactions. And he is claiming that he still owns not only the mined Bitcoin from the early years, but also the still-to-issue Bitcoins. That is extraordinary. Yeah, that's an extraordinary claim. Isn't it? Yes. So let's move on then and discuss Craig Wright's tax situation between 2009 and 2014, because this is where the foundation of his claim to be Satoshi comes from in many ways. Now, at this time, the Australian government was really keen to try and spur development of certain sectors so companies could claim a tax rebate on the money that was spent on research and development. Is that essentially what they were offering, Arthur? Yeah, basically, if you spend money on uh, R&D, yeah, research and development, you can have a lot of that you can uh, get back from uh, the ATO, the Australian Taxation Office. Okay, and he was doing this with other companies before this? or He advised uh, clients about it in the BDO times. So in 2014, I believe one of his companies or a group of his companies under the Hotwire name, I think they tried to claim millions of dollars in this R&D tax relief, didn't they? The total of tax returns that did not all came through, but on the balance sheet of uh, what we saw when it went bankrupt in uh, April 2014, was uh, somewhere between 12 and, and 15 million. And um, was it then that Wright started claiming that he bought all these things with his Bitcoin stash? He started in 2013 with claiming to have addresses from the Bitcoin rich list. 
that he could never prove, never sign for. And that turned into being an early minor in late 2013 or early 2014. And then he started to mention to the ATO that he was an early miner. So Wright claims that he mined all this Bitcoin in its early days and then used this Bitcoin to buy hardware and software for his companies and then tried to claim that dollar value back through the R&D tax rebate scheme. Now, the ATO weren't too happy about this and they withheld payment and sat down to talk to Wright about Bitcoin and what it was and what it did and how they were going to deal with it. This delayed everything to the point where Hotwire went bankrupt in 2014 And eventually, in November that year, the claim was rejected anyway, and Hotwire, or what was left of it, was hit with a $1.7 million penalty for the fraudulent tax relief claim. So it's pretty clear from those early exchanges that the ATO is not buying the Bitcoin story. And as a sort of last roll of the dice, Wright applied for the same kind of tax relief, this time for a much bigger amount. And there's a press release from May 2015 which just describes the size of the claim. De Morgan Limited is pleased to advise that the companies in its controlled group have satisfied the requisite criteria under all industries' R&D tax incentive scheme for an advanced finding with respect to R&D activities conducted in the development of smart contract and blockchain-based technologies. De Morgan Limited and controlled companies is eligible to receive up to approximately $54 million in R&D cash rebates for R&D activities conducted in the 2014 and 2015 financial year. There's a quote from Craig Wright as well, and he says, This rebate will strengthen the group's cash position and is an important source of funds for our development activities. We acknowledge the government's support of important R&D activities and we look forward to the successful commercialization of our blockchain and smart contract systems research. Now, this is interesting in itself, but in May this year, Wright chose to refer back to it because it was coming up in a court case and he said, There was never any money coming back from the Australian government. Using the research and development tax scheme would have enabled my company to have continued within Australia rather than having to move to Europe. So, Arthur, how would the group have strengthened its cash position if there was no cash coming back? Because it didn't happen. I mean, we all know that it ended at the end of the year 2015 in December. It ended with raids on his house and office. They took all his files to, again, completely (laughs) nullify the whole scheme. So following on from this, as we know, governments are not very keen in giving money back to taxpayers and this combination of Wright's history with them and the huge sum involved resulted in them looking further into his claim and what they found concerned them, particularly with regard to two supercomputers which he supposedly bought in 2014. One of them was allegedly bought by Cloudcroft, one of Wright's companies, from a company called Silicon Graphics Incorporated, or SGI. Now, at the time, this computer was valued at something like $100 million, and Wright made several public claims about how SGI had helped Cloudcroft tune the computer to the point where it found a spot in the top 500 computers in the world in June 2015. And Cloudcroft even published a letter of endorsement from SGI on their company website. However, in late 2015, SGI said, Cloudcroft has never been an SGI customer, and SGI has no relationship with Cloudcroft CEO Craig Stephen Wright. This obviously caused a bit of suspicion, and in explaining why SGI was reticent to admit their dealings with him, Wright said, 
SGI decided to disavow any knowledge of the sale when approached by the media, even though there is ample evidence of meetings, communications and about everything you could ever think of. The reason is simple. SGI is a US company. Why is this simple? Well, at the time, gambling and sports books just happened to be illegal within the US. The consequence for a US computer company was selling computer hardware to gaming companies in Panama and Costa Rica just happens to be illegal. Incidentally, Wright has never presented this ample evidence supporting the sale and apparently didn't keep records of these Bitcoin transactions either, despite the fact he's planning to use them for multi-million dollar tax rebates, which is extraordinary in itself, isn't it? Yeah, to give even a little bit more of detail to that whole story, actually the first supercomputer already popped up uh, with a difficult Japanese name that I cannot even uh, pronounced but uh, in 2013 in total we are talking about three supercomputers and all three of them never existed. Wright is also supposed to have bought another supercomputer with his bitcoin called C01N or coin quite cute and he said that in May 2015 he'd merged this with one of his own supercomputers to form a kind of mega supercomputer that would come in at number 17 on the top 500 computer list of that year. Six months later, in December 2015, SGI had something to say about this one too. SGI has no record of the CE001 supercomputer ever being purchased or serviced by SGI. Therefore, SGI suspects it may have been purchased on the grey market. SGI does not operate, maintain or provide any services for this computer. So there again, we've got the company that supposedly sold it denying any knowledge of the sale. But it wasn't just SGI who had doubts about the existence of these supercomputers. The ATO didn't believe they existed either. And they listed 10 anomalies in Wright's version of events, which included questioning the legitimacy of Wright's supporting evidence and concluding that, quote, the evidence provided to us was manufactured by the taxpayer in an attempt to deceive us. That's not surprising, is it? No, after visiting him at least once in his office uh, where he showed them uh, those uh, supercomputers, how they worked. So they have seen the physical evidence also, if they existed or not. So we've got these, I'm going to say two supercomputers we're referencing here. We'll leave this third difficult Japanese one aside for a second. So these two supercomputers that are worth, in theory, hundreds of millions of dollars have been bought with Bitcoin that rights companies are claiming tax relief on but they don't seem to have been purchased by him at all. Wright also claims to have brought software from his other company, Hotwire, in Bitcoin, but again, the ATO, having seen no evidence to support these claims at all, said this was a nullity based on a sham. As for the supercomputers themselves, Wright told the ATO that they were based in Iceland and Panama, which is handily outside of Australian jurisdiction, but again, never produced any verified evidence to show they ever existed, or let alone how they found their way overseas. I mean, you would have thought that if you're transporting nine figures worth of computing equipment abroad, you'd have some invoices somewhere, but no, he didn't have those. And you've got to think that SGI as well, for their part, never claimed acceptance of any Bitcoin from Wright. And indeed, it would have been weird for a company to accept Bitcoin in any way as far back as 2014. But there's no way that a company is going to sell hundreds of millions of dollars worth of computing equipment for Bitcoin in the first place and then not record it. So at this point, you've got two key narratives that come within six days of each other. 
On February the 11th, 2014, Wright emails Louis Kleiman, the father of his former business partner Dave Kleiman, who had died the year previously, completely out of the blue to tell him that your son, Dave and I are two of the three key people behind Bitcoin. Now, that's going to mean nothing to Louis Kleiman, is it? I mean, he's going to wonder why, 10 months after his son's death, he's being sent this email about Bitcoin, isn't he? Yeah, if I were in his position, I would be completely flabbergasted and surprised, yeah. That is where the cosplay started. In that month, I think in, in January somewhere, so indeed a week or two weeks earlier, we found traces of that he mentioned it also. But the the most famous example is where he declared it indeed to the father of uh, late uh, Dave Kleiman. What's also fascinating is that the week before this email, he said to the ATO, I did my best to try and hide the fact that I've been running Bitcoin since 2009. But by the end of this, I think half the world is going to know. So he's complaining there that people will know he created Bitcoin but a week before, he's emailing Louis Kleiman to tell him he created Bitcoin. In that email to the to the Kleiman estate, it was meant to test the waters for his cosplay and see the reactions and start to bamboozle the Kleiman estate into the whole Bitcoin scam that he was performing. Yeah, I, I think at this point, it's in his interest to make the world know he created Bitcoin. I don't think it's in any surprise he's doing it within this short space of time. I think he sends out this email to Louis Kleiman thinking he's going to do something about it. I think he thinks he's going to go to the press, he's going to dig more into it. Like you say, I think he thinks that the Kleiman family are going to help him perpetuate this myth. But the fact that Kleiman didn't do anything with the information, he's just some old guy in Florida who gets this email, doesn't know what to do about it. And he certainly doesn't go to the press about it. And I think the fact that he sat on it for a week and didn't do anything pushed Wright to take it one step further and to tell the tax office about his supposed Bitcoin uh, dealings while trying again to make it seem like he's coming across as this reluctant creator. For me, the most important part is that Craig Wright needed a backup against the ATO for his stories. And he was trying to find backup for his Bitcoin stories, his mining stories that were, of course, fraudulent uh, from here to Tokyo. But if the Kleiman family could confirm several of those things, yeah, Dave Kleiman was involved with the inception of Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, 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 they have been mining together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the ATO might have been buying more of the, the tax return claims that um, Craig Wright was filing all the time. And there's also an interesting point, which is that for years, um, and even to a point now, Wright has indeed painted this picture of himself as this reclusive creator who's keen to stay out of the limelight and kind of work on his creations. But if this is the case, he's just done the opposite of that. If you claim tens of millions of dollars in tax relief through Bitcoin transactions and you don't keep any evidence to back them up, you're going the wrong way about keeping your involvement quiet, aren't you? Yeah, totally. It's only what I call confidence game. Trying to bluff people into believing something that is just not true. There's also, in this interview with the ATO in 2014, he says the reason why he made the R&D tax claims is because he always considered Bitcoin to be just another form of money and therefore always thought it was just money he was spending which is a risky move because there's been no official judgment by this point of what the status of Bitcoin is. 
and this is again another insight into his mindset that he either assumes the ATO would ultimately side with him and his viewpoint on Bitcoin, that he considered his own ideologies above the tax laws of Australia, or that he knew he might be pulled up on it, but just tried to see how far he could get away with it. Yeah, that's what I would think. So that he was waiting. I know one document where he says that he was waiting for three private rulings about those things. And at least one of them was uh, about uh, the status of Bitcoin. Is it uh, a commodity? Is it an asset? Is it um, Can it be seen as money? And he received that private ruling, I think, late 2013. I mean, it's a hell of a gamble to take that you're just assuming that they're going to accept it as ready money. At this point in the story, we come to the Tulip Trust. Now, the reason for this is because a crucial part of this part of the story is where Wright's Bitcoin treasure trove is supposedly located. He says he mined and bought 1.1 million Bitcoin along with Dave Kleiman, and he created this company called Tulip Trading Limited in June 2011, wrapped up all the Bitcoin and some IP and sent it off to the Seychelles, on the proviso that he could borrow Bitcoin from the fund to pay for development of the protocol. Already, by this point, there is antagonism between Wright and the government, which dates back to February 2013, when Wright won a ruling against the ATO, who disputed the deductions he claimed on his tax return. So he had the battle with them over that, and he was also mistrustful of them because of a ruling they made on Hotwire in September 2013, which he says they never sent to him and that he eventually received in November 2013 to find it had been backdated by two months. So Wright is clearly on bad terms with the ATO by this point, although it's quite ironic that he's accusing them of backdating paperwork, isn't it, Arthur? Yeah, and he's making a big fuss about a small detail. I mean, he had at that moment five companies falling under the hotwire group so the bookkeeping and the filings of uh, tax returns were uh, for five companies and he's complaining about one of them so it, it, it's a minor detail in the whole story but he blows it up as, it, as if it is the whole story which is just not true so in 2011 then when he says he created this tulip trust and moved all his bitcoin offshore he was working at the time building software for gambling companies and, he says, the UK and US governments whilst simultaneously working on Bitcoin. Now, due to the audits on his companies, he's basically going bankrupt, which he says is partly why he moved the Bitcoin overseas in order to protect it. Now, there's an interesting little side note here from February 2011. And bear in mind, this is two years after he supposedly launched Bitcoin. Wright published a blog post entitled Looking for People Interested in Starting a New Revolution in Payments. Now, just by reading that title, you think, oh, you know, this is the first public hint we have of him uh, from Bitcoin. But no, what he's interested in instead is a gold-based system. He says, I'm interested in talking with others who may be interested in starting an online gold trading system along the lines of PayPal. So is this a clever subterfuge or is this more evidence that even by February 2011, he still has no idea what Bitcoin is? If you ask me, yeah, this was uh, indeed a few months before he first started posting about uh, Bitcoin on, uh, on the conversation website. And if you are thinking at that moment, 
after uh, leaving the Bitcoin, let's presume he is uh, Satoshi, <laughs> after leaving the project behind in the hands of the community, a decentralized, pretty revolutionary system to build uh, a global money system on, and then thinking that a clunky system based on PayPal and gold will be the next revolution. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not buying it. No, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. So the June 2011 document where Wright describes the formation of the Tulip Trust acknowledges he's facing bankruptcy, which is pretty much one of the only true parts of the document. Now, Wright says he quit the Bitcoin scene in 2011 because he was disgusted with what it had become being used for online drugs purchases, that sort of thing. He still made sure he could take out loans from the Tulip Trust Bitcoin to fund the companies he intended to still keep developing the protocol. Now, Wright says that around this time, before he stepped away, he had around 50 staff helping him develop the various companies and projects he decided to try and start up with Bitcoin. But the ATO investigations found that in at least one of Wright's companies, there were no staff employed. And they said that therefore there is no evidence that Wright was conducting an enterprise. And ATO officials would later state that they didn't believe he actually mined the Bitcoin he said he'd mined in 2009 and 2010, and also claimed to possess evidence that the Tulip Trust was in fact invented in 2014, and all the documents relating to it backdated to 2011, purely to avoid a $1.6 million tax bill, which you've already said is pretty much what happened. Yeah, the reports are basically published in 2015 and 16. So I'm not sure if they already in 2014 immediately knew that this Tulip Trust thing was a uh, bullshit. But yeah, they quickly figured it out because they just traced everything back to WNK, the 2011 company that it had nothing to do actually with anything Bitcoin mining, that uh, Dave Kleiman was not involved with uh, anything Tulip Trust because they found out that the documents that he claimed were in an email dated June uh, 2011 was actually created in uh, October 2014, which is uh, more than a year after Dave Kleiman's death. So, I mean, so they quickly figured out that the whole scheme was fraudulent. And that's why this whole Tulip Trust story is so hilarious, because it was initially only set up to avoid uh, 1.6 million uh, GS payment. So Ryan says that between 2011 and 2013 he spent millions on developing Bitcoin and conducted research to try and prove that Bitcoin worked. And during this time, he says, I worked out how systems such as Monero, Zcash and for that matter any anonymous blockchain could be infiltrated and stopped. Now this in itself is doubtful given that Monero, a privacy coin, wasn't in existence until a fork in April 2014 led to its creation, while Zcash wasn't around until 2016. So here's Wright saying he's worked out how these systems operate years before they've been launched. This is what you always find in all his stories, that the timelines don't match. And that's how you can quickly figure out that yeah, you're trying to match your timeline with Satoshi Nakamoto timeline and it fails. Yeah, and they're so easy to disprove. It just takes two minutes of research and there's another alleged truth disproved. A crucial bit of this story, which we've touched on before, is when Wright first got into Bitcoin, when he first really got to grips with it and started using it. Now, he did mention Bitcoin in uh, some 
pieces for the Conversation website in 2011, but these were very, very brief and he misspelt Bitcoin in one of the pieces. Prior to 2011, there is nothing from Craig Wright online to say he was into Bitcoin and he knew about Bitcoin, which isn't surprising when you consider he was trying to get people into PayPal for gold in February 2011. But there is a lot of evidence to suggest that 2013 was the year when Wright really got into Bitcoin. And there's a spell in 2013 in particular that's crucial to this period. So I'll run through this little um, 13 day spell in April 2013 where there's so much that happens after nothing happening at all. On April 17th, 2013, Wright registers a company called CoinExch, which had designs on being a cryptocurrency exchange. And this was supposed to be the first of several Bitcoin related companies, I think Wright formed in 2013, is that correct? Yeah, although the Bitcoin thing, especially where you see CoinEx popping up, that has a longer background. In late 2012, he decided with a guy called Jamie Wilson and, and his uh, then wife uh, and still current wife uh, Ramona Watts to set up something called Bitcoin Bank. So he was already having those plans and he tried to set them up with Jamie Wilson, who was uh, for a while the CFO of the whole thing. They set up uh, the Hotwire group and, and the companies, Coinex was one of them, but that was already starting in 2012. Five days later, Wright buys his first Bitcoin from Mt. Gox, buying and then selling 48 Bitcoin within 48 hours. Four days after this, Dave Kleiman dies, and between April 27th and 29th, Wright publishes four blog posts on the subject of Bitcoin, having never written about Bitcoin on his blog before. On the following day, April 30th, Wright finds out about Dave Kleiman's death. So, given everything we've discussed here, it's a fair summary, I think, to say that Wright had no intention of pretending to be Satoshi Nakamoto, until he realised it was the only way he could potentially get himself out of this corner he'd painted himself into by lying to the tax office about the source of the funds for his multi-million dollar tax rebate. Would you say that's a fair summary of what we've covered so far? It's a very fair uh, summary. You can see uh, Craig Wright rather quickly grow into that role play of pretending uh, to be Satoshi Nakamoto. So if I have to make a fair assumption about uh, that period, it was late 2013, Craig was still only showing the ATO random Bitcoin addresses from the Bitcoin rich list, over which he said that he had full control. Well, <laughs> that's what he claimed, without explaining too much how he obtained uh, these Bitcoin addresses. And then Craig came up with the Bitcoin mining story, but that was followed up with his email to the Kleiman estate, where he falsely declared that he was, together with Dave Kleiman, involved with the inception of uh, Bitcoin. Now, we're going to leave the tax side of things there for a moment and focus on another aspect of this, which is just as important, which is intellectual property. And this is where Dave Kleiman and his relationship with Craig Wright really comes to the fore. So, Arthur, what do we know of the relationship between Craig and Dave prior to 2011? Yeah, what we know about it is that uh, Craig and Dave date back quite a bit. During my research, I found a few sources where the years uh, differ a little bit, but it appears that they date back to around uh, 2003 when they met online. They also met a few times in uh, real life too, but only a handful of times at most. From the material available, it's clear they thought of each other as uh, friends, 
rather than just business associates. Before WNK, they did some other work together. For example, they wrote a white paper on wiping hard disks uh, together, which is pretty ironic uh, considering what would uh, come up in a climate versus right case. Now, the important date for us, really, as far as this story is concerned, is February 14th, 2011, which is where Dave Kleiman, on his own, formed W&K Informational Defence. Now, even though the W in this name stands for Wright, it doesn't apparently stand for Craig Wright, but Wright's wife at the time, Lynn Wright, is supposedly the reason for the W being present there. Yeah, what was filed in the Florida registry was indeed uh, Dave Kleiman as a director and sole member and shareholder of uh, WNK. But of course, there was some sort of uh, partnership with Craig Wright to try to obtain those four Homeland Security projects in February 2011. But the existence of a partnership doesn't make Craig Wright owner of uh, WNK in any shape or form, of course. And there is still some argument about this from Craig's side. And in fact, there are two lawsuits uh, pending about this. But all the evidence uh, so far shows that only Dave Kleiman owned uh, the whole thing. And Craig Wright desperately trying multiple times to rewrite history with his uh, forgeries and uh, false claim. And Lynn Wright... She is involved. She was involved in the communications about uh, WNK, but she has never been an owner or a manager or a shareholder of WNK. So even though Wright's name isn't on any of the company formation documents, he still plays a very active role in the company. WNK was supposed to be a research outfit, and they put uh, four proposals to the Department of Homeland Security, but they were all rejected and they got no money to pursue anything as far as the research projects go. In 2014, Wright changed the supposed nature of WNK to say that it also conducted Bitcoin mining, which is supposedly where part of the 1.1 million Bitcoin comes up that would eventually go into the Tulip Trust. Now, Kleiman had been involved in a motorcycle accident in 1995, which had left him paralysed. And this led to a general decline in his health over the years, to the point where he died on April 26th, 2013, as we've already said. Now, Wright discovered this on April 30th, and he posted a very moving video tribute to Dave Kleiman on YouTube. However, there is no mention of Bitcoin there at all, no mention of any project that the pair were working on together, nothing that's going to change the world, and any of the later things he attributes to the pair of them working on things together doesn't come up in this video whatsoever. Yeah, we cannot really get our hands on uh, what happened exactly in and around April. We know of uh, two in-memoriams from uh, Craig, one posted on uh, YouTube, as you said, and one posted on his own blog. But there is indeed no mention of Bitcoin whatsoever. No designing Bitcoin, no writing white paper, no coding Bitcoin together, nothing. And we're talking about April 2013 here, five years after Craig said that he and Dave started working together on it and supposedly had done a lot of Bitcoin things together. Make no mistake here, there is no genuine material from around this time, April 2013 or before, that shows that Dave and Craig were working on or with Bitcoin in the 2008 to 2013 timeframe. And these in memoriams where no Bitcoin is mentioned, as I said, are another straw for the camel's back. Now, this is where it gets really, really interesting and a bit dark, because less than three months after Kleiman's death, 
Wrights sued W&K for $28.5 million, made up of charges for work done by Craig Wright on the four rejected Homeland Security projects, plus $20 million, which he claims he loaned the company from his Bitcoin stash. And it's interesting to note that this claim was filed after Kleiman's death, so there was no one to challenge him on the merits of it. No evidence for the Bitcoin loan was put before the court, and yet somehow Wright got the case awarded to him. Now, Wright would have been fully aware that W&K didn't have $28.5 million to pay him. So, Arthur, what was the objective of his lawsuit? Well, Craig said that in Supreme Court, because of course the company W&K didn't have any money. It was struck from the registry after having done uh, no business in uh, 2011. So Craig would take uh, the non-existent intellectual property related to Bitcoin in its place, which was the Bitcoin software that W&K had supposedly created. But again, it was all created from thin air. In August, Wright tried the exact same thing again for a slightly less amount of money, but again, he was successful. So... Now he's saying to the court that there's $57 million worth of IP in this company, which he's valued himself, as well as close to a million Bitcoin, which he loaned the company, even though he hasn't got any evidence of this. He can't prove the value of the intellectual property. He can't prove the Bitcoin ever got there. You just have to take him on his word. But if he can't get the money back for the Bitcoin, he'll take the IP in its place. Yeah, allow me to tell you a little anecdote uh, that maybe helps to understand the process of the court uh, to sign off on these non-existent uh, claims. We've already mentioned Jamie Wilson. Well, he was hired as a CFO uh, early 2013 by Craig Wright and who had resigned in October of 2013. So he only stayed for nine or ten months. And just before the court signed off on the two intellectual property claims, Craig came up with a paper, I think it was a minutes from a shareholder meeting or something like that, that supposedly showed that Jamie Wilson was acting as a director of WNK and signing off on the deal and admitting that there was a debt to Craig Wright and that it would be paid back in intellectual property but Jamie Wilson, as, uh, as I just said before, had already resigned at this point. He didn't work for Craig anymore, and he knew nothing about this part of the meeting and the content of the minutes that Craig had changed. But nevertheless, these minutes helped uh, to convince the court that there was no fact-finding needed, because there was now evidence that the WNK company was happy with the deal to only hand over the intellectual property. So on one side, you have Craig Wright uh, filing a claim for the intellectual property instead of the cash. And on the other side, you have Craig Wright signing off on it using fake forced meeting minutes with an employee that he uh, didn't employ anymore. So what Craig Wright managed to do in these cases then is essentially assign himself prosecution and defense for his own court case? Yeah, basically that was the case indeed. And he also lied within the forgery. He lied about being a shareholder of WNK. He claimed that he was a 50% shareholder with Dave Kleiman, who, who owned the other 50%, because this was the only way that he could get anything back. Yet there was no documents ever found that such a thing did ever happen. And indeed, in the evidence in the Kleiman versus Wright trial, and the trials about uh, the ownership of WNK, nothing, really nothing shows that Craig Wright ever was a 50% shareholder in WNK or any other shareholder uh, for that matter. Okay, so those deals are done for better or worse. The court agrees with that and it's signed off. And he's now got this IP that he says is worth $57 million. 
So let's take this to the next stage then. What does he do with that IP? Well, it's, it's a long and convoluted story involving uh, many of his companies, but basically his aim was to use the intellectual property to claim back uh, GST, which is goods and services tax. If you uh, send an invoice from one company to another and there is a GST on one side, the receiving company can then claim this uh, GST back from the Australian Taxation Office, the ATO. And if you make a construction that the company who is sending the invoice does not have to pay the GST, then in the end, it turns out that the ATO has to pay GST to one of Craig's companies. So Craig is sending all these bits of intellectual property between his own companies and then trying to claim back as much GST as possible on this, in essence, worthless uh, intellectual property. It's incredible really, the thought process he's gone through here um, and the skullduggery of using the death of your so-called best friend to essentially grab all this money from the company you both owned to then spread it around your companies and try and get it back to you in some sort of real cash again. Now, bear in mind, the whole purpose of this podcast is that we're supposed to be seeing whether this guy is Satoshi Nakamoto or not. And we don't know much about Satoshi Nakamoto for obvious reasons, his history, his background, that sort of thing. But it just doesn't ring true that the guy that used his own time and his own resources to give the world Bitcoin and then walk away from it, leaving behind what would become billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin in untouched coins, is the same man who is at the same time as creating and developing Bitcoin, pulling the wool over the court's eyes, over his dead best friend's eyes, to try and launder all this money through IP and through fake Bitcoin loans. It just doesn't ring true. No, it's uh, exactly it doesn't. Now, Andrew O'Hagan, who, as we said earlier, followed Wright around for nine months in the 2015 and 2016 era, said of his experiences talking to Wright about W&K that this was a story that Wright for some reason didn't want to tell me. I think we, we know very much now why he didn't want to tell Andrew Hagen that story. The Kleiman estate eventually sued Wright over his IP grab, a case which we'll cover in much more detail later in this series. But in the lawsuit they filed in 2018, it included this quote. To accomplish this scheme, Wright drafted and backdated at least three contracts to create a paper trail purporting to document that many of these Bitcoin and IP rights were to be transferred, sold and or returned to himself. Now, this paper trail included two documents that were consulting contracts between Wright and W&K, one dated 2008 and one dated 2009, years before the company was created, which is a massive, massive red flag right away. Yeah, it is, absolutely. WNK was raised for only one purpose, trying to obtain uh, four projects from Homeland Security, and uh, that's about it. Every document, every contract, every email with the name WNK that is dated shortly or generously before that, like 2008 and 2009, is a clear-cut forgery created after April 2013. Now... Let's be generous. This might have been an oversight on Wright's part, but it also turned out that he lied in the W&K lawsuit about these Department of Homeland Security contracts, claiming they were all awarded when in fact, as we said, they were all rejected. Only a month after Wright's first contact with the Kleiman estate, which was this email sent to Louis Kleiman to tell him that uh, Dave and Craig had created Bitcoin, 
W and K was reinstated by Wright's agent at the time, the 21-year-old Uyen Win, a former Miss Universe Vietnam contestant who became part of Wright's business entourage. Win removed Dave Kleiman as a registered agent for W and K and put herself in instead. She then added herself as manager and secretary, as well as adding herself as director of CoinExch in the same year. Despite being in regular contact with the Kleiman estate at the time, Wright concealed the reinstatement of W&K from them, which clearly meant there was something there that he didn't want them to see. Andrew O'Hagan discusses Uyen Win in his piece on Craig Wright, and he says, While I was preparing this story, Wright began to seem worried about Uyen, and I always felt he was in the middle of a very complicated lie when he talked about her. Arthur, to what extent, or to what depth, do you think this complicated lie goes with Uyen Win? Yeah, that's a very good question. I had been hoping that she would appear as a witness in one of Craig's lawsuits, especially the Crime versus Wright case, of course, and that she would give a deposition, but sadly that never happened. I think she knows all sorts of secrets uh, about Craig's dealings that he wouldn't want to come out. Her name pops up a few times in the United Kingdom in company filings and also in a huge Bitcoin loan of 650,000 BTC that she was supposed to have authorized in 2012. But this is one of the many Bitcoin transfers that Craig claimed happened with his Bitcoin holdings, but in reality it had nothing to do with him. So we think that she has also been running Craig Wright's Twitter uh, account for a while, but we can't be sure to be honest. Some people have even suggested that she might not even exist. And that is how mysterious her role is. But I do think that she does exist, uh, though. I think she has been close to Craig Wright for a while, but it appears likely that she pulled out around 2016 or 17 and probably to never return. And Craig also claimed in the climate case that she was a trustee in one of his tulip trust uh, constructions, but oh, how convenient for him, he can no longer contact her. Unfortunately for Wright, these huge tax rebate claims he made using the IP would form a big part of the ATO's case against him, alongside these alleged Bitcoin payments for the supercomputers and the rest of it. This investigation, which is believed to be ongoing, resulted in a December 2015 raid on his home and offices that we'll come to in a later episode. Fortunately for us, the ATO's case notes against him were included as evidence in the Kleiman versus Wright case, and they lay the activities of Wright and his companies open to public scrutiny, which is fantastic for us. There's lots to digest in there, but we've picked out a few special, special quotes. There's one example here of just how complex and interlinked his activities are. Craig Wright purports to have received a loan of 650,000 Bitcoin from the Seychelles Trust pursuant to a deed of loan entered into with a trustee for the Seychelles Trust, a company called Design by Human Limited. However, records show Craig Wright was only informed of the existence of this company on a date after the purported deed of loan was entered into. Furthermore, the deed of loan was not validly executed by an authorised person and signed on a date where Design by Human was merely a dormant shelf company. As it was Craig Wright who modified the directorship of DBH in January 2014, he had knowledge that the person purportedly signing the deed of loan on behalf of Design by Human did not have the authority to do so, and therefore that the deed was invalid. 
Now, we'll go into design by human in more detail in a later episode, but this is another example of Wright manipulating dates and backdating filings to create a narrative, except it's completely obvious what he's been up to because everything is public record. I mean, he seems like a Scooby-Doo villain. He's trying to do all these really bad things, but he just keeps messing it up all the time and he keeps leaving his fingerprints everywhere, doesn't he? Yeah, for sure. His uh, sloppy forgeries uh, survive a superficial glance, but they are aimed at a gullible audience that doesn't have experience with forensic inquiry or this type of evidence. But once you look past the surface of these forgeries, they quickly collapse in front of your eyes. Well, on the subject of what the ATO thought of his ability to run companies, they have highlighted in the past several occasions where Wright backdated directorship documents, especially relating to design by human, to make it seem like the directors took over sooner than they did, and that happened again later on. Then there's a case of him claiming to have sold IP from one company to another three months before it was awarded to him by a judge, There's a great report from the tax commissioner as to Wright's endeavours during this period, and he says, You have not demonstrated an ability to earn income other than claiming ATO refunds. You have not traded with any third parties or employed any staff as set out in our decision relating to your shortfall. Your intended business activities could not turn a profit, and there has not been any real or lasting contribution to your share capital by your purported shareholders. There is therefore no evidence that you were conducting an enterprise during the period for which the statement was made. This sums up what you're saying, Arthur, doesn't it? I mean, these companies existed in name only. There was no business. The only business was shuffling around ATO refunds and making it look like everything was going fine and profit was being made, isn't it? Yeah, correct. It all sounds very impressive when you say that you own companies in the United Kingdom, I own companies in Australia, in the Seychelles, and we have hundreds of millions uh, sloshing around. But in Craig's case, it's all only in his dreams, and from his dreams written down on paper. And that's where it stops. The companies themselves, they did exist, but they hardly created anything. Craig actually never properly ran a company for any decent length of time, and they almost all ran into bankruptcy within a handful of years. Craig also claimed he had all these employees in the past, but many of them have never been paid a penny. It was all about getting those tax returns from the ATO with almost 100% backdated bookkeeping. His accounts were riddled with forgeries, the ATO found out, and it went all the way back to at least WNK in 2011. And for his Satoshi stories, he even made forgeries dating back to 2008, 2007, and even 2002. At some point, the ATO figured out by looking at his bank accounts and trying to get a grip on what exactly was the cash flow, that his company's cash flow was made up of no less than 94% of tax returns. That was the whole cash flow in those years. We are talking about 2013 to 2015 era here. 94%. Let that sink in. Shocked but not shocked, I think, is the phrase there. There is a very telling quote from Wright from around this time in a statement he made to the ATO, and he says to them, Fiat is not true money. Bitcoin and gold are. If a value-added tax is applied, we will create a system that undermines this through the use of legal avenues. We will create financial instruments based on the item we wish to promote, but as a derivative that undermines the effective tax. If there is a surefire way to get the tax man on your back, boasting about undermining the tax system is probably the way to go about it, isn't it? 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I find this whole story so fascinating. There's this rebel side, there's this common side, there's the cosplay side. It has so many elements that it makes this whole story so fascinating. And he keeps on thinking that he can get away with it. And, well, I mean, he has so far, pretty much, but all the evidence isn't going away and the ATO is still criminally investigating him. But, to be fair, so far he seems to be dodging the bullets. Yeah, he is. I mean, even though there is so much that's obvious to everyone that takes the time to look, he still seems to skate above it all and carry on going somehow. There are some choice words that Wright has called the ATO in the past, but in particular from a 2012 email to Dave Kleiman where he calls them f***ing dicks and bloody lying ATO c***-sucking bastards, which is some fairly strong language. And again, if you want the tax man on your back, calling them those things is a great way to go about it. Now, one thing we should point out is that despite all the name-calling, all the factual evidence, there have been no formal charges brought against Craig Wright as a result of this investigation. But that's not to say the tax office have abandoned the case, there's just been no charges brought yet. And Wright claimed during a very feisty exchange at a conference in 2019 that he was not on the run from the ATO, despite having left Australia the day the tax office raided his home and his businesses in 2015. So. He's not on the run, he just ran the same day. Yeah, <laughs> that's what he said. We're coming to the end of this episode. I think it's a good idea to give an overall summary of what we've learned about Craig Wright and this portion of his life and his story. So by this point, by the end of 2014, Wright has started to leak the idea that he is Satoshi Nakamoto, with his email to Louis Kleiman potentially being an attempt to get his name out there as being Bitcoin's co-creator. All this did, however, is stir up the Kleiman family's interest in what Wright was involved in, which led them to discover the stripping of the IP by Wright in 2013 from W&K. So to the outside world, you've got this intelligent and successful IT consultant with several research companies, a list of academic achievements and a very bright future. We also have Wright presenting himself as a secretive, benevolent visionary who has selflessly created an entire new monetary system and handed it over to the world. The reality, however, is that underneath all that, he's being accused of trying to defraud the state and enrich himself through embezzling funds and illegally acquiring intellectual property from his dead friend. You can't get two more opposed characteristics like that in a non-fictional person, can you? No, you certainly can't. It, if you ask me, it's a modern-day Jekyll and Hyde story, definitely. And what's amazing is uh, he managed to gather what we can call a cult of believers who absolutely deny that he has ever done anything of these things, or that it is uh, impossible that he has been defrauding everyone around him. And, of course, that he is then certainly Satoshi Nakamoto. They have been bamboozled by his supposed knowledge of Bitcoin, which, by the way, has been exposed on many occasions as uh, incompetent. And they cannot see any way that this guy is uh, probably not Satoshi. They just refuse to look at the evidence against him. Yeah, I mentioned earlier how the cryptocurrency world is like a religion or a set of religions. But what Craig Wright has created is a cult, without doubt. Because they're so indoctrinated that they just ignore any criticism. I mean, he won't let any criticism get to them because he only lets them exist in this little sort of online bubble that's his own private channel where you're not allowed to say anything bad against him or you get kicked out. It's very, very Jonestown. It's all very insular and it's all very 
we're good, they're bad, they're coming to get us. It won't end like Jonestown, obviously, but there have been people that have been buying this BSV coin. They've been swapping their portfolios out for this BSV coin. The price has been stagnating or going down for years now. So what we could end up seeing here is some kind of digital financial Jonestown, couldn't we? Yeah, that's certainly on the cards. I try to follow the community a bit on Twitter, although many of them have me blocked, of course, because they don't like what I'm saying. But I sometimes circumvent these Twitter blocks and I can still see what they are saying and doing. There are a few that have seen the light and have left the BSV community, but the core fan base is still there and will likely be there till the very end. It's sad. I can only say it's sad. They are on this emotional roller coaster because he builds them up with these great promises which never materialize. And then he blames the Bitcoin community or some other enemy from the past or from the future or from today to deflect from his own failings. There was one occasion when some supporters wanted to start a class action lawsuit against Craig Wright, but he managed to calm the mutiny and he brought them back in line. And now they're back to believing the stories again. It's so weird to watch it all unravel in real time. So I think a financial Jonestown is a good way to describe it, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that wraps up episode one of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. In episode two, we'll look at Craig Wright's arrival into the public sphere in 2015 and investigate how what was supposed to be a momentous revelation turned instead into a complete farce. Arthur, thank you so much for your knowledge and your insights. Where can people find the masses of in-depth research and reporting you've done on Craig Wright? Well, I post uh, regular updates uh, about Craig Wright uh, debunks and sometimes little Bitcoin history lessons on my uh, Twitter at my legacy kit. And my long-form articles are available on uh, a platform called Medium. And I'm also called uh, my legacy kit there. Great. Well, thank you very much. And we'll do this all again in episode two. Well, thank you. And see you later, uh, Mark. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. If you enjoyed what you heard, we'd love it if you could rate and even review us on your podcast app of choice to help us spread the word. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast too in order to get the episodes the moment they drop. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at DrBitcoinPod, that's at DRBitcoinPod, and you can also email us at DrBitcoinPod at gmail.com, that's at DRBitcoinPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt, editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.